This is a Federal News Network podcast. When it comes to weather forecasting, everything depends on the model. Weather scientists are constantly tinkering with models, trying to get more data in them from more sources. Now the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has upgraded its global forecast system model in a few ways. Here with the speeds and feeds, the chief of the modeling and data simulation branch at NOAA's Environmental Modeling Center, Dr. Vijay Talabragada. Dr. Talabragada, good to have you on. Good morning. How are you doing? Okay. And we should point out that you were talking to me from halfway around the globe, and it sounds like you're almost like you're sitting right in my studio. Tell us the model that we're talking about, because I think NOAA has several weather models. Which one are we talking about here? Sure. What we are talking about is the flagship American model, the colloquial name of uh, the global forecast system. This is the mother of all models that Weather Service operates because it impacts almost every other modeling system that NOAA operates for various applications. So this is a a kind of a major upgrade that we do every two or three years. And uh, the global forecast system, the GFS version 16, is the latest incarnation of that cycle of upgrades. And a model is a piece of software, correct? Uh, Tell us more about the size of it, what language it's programmed in and how it all exists. So these are uh, the physical processes in the atmospheric system coded into computer software, which is largely built upon Fortran 95. This is probably the only industry that still uses Fortran as a programming language, although we we added more uh, object-oriented programming into Fortran. And uh, these codes uh, are kind of 100,000, 200,000 lines of codes. They are run on powerful supercomputers, and they are integrated forward in time to predict what happens next. And in order to do that, you need to have initial conditions. That means what is uh, at present happening in the world. And in order to do that, we collect all the data that we can, either from satellites, the remote sensing. They, They send us billions of data points. We also have conventional data like the radio sounds, the balloons, the surface weather stations, the drop sounds from aircraft, and all aircraft data and some commercial data. So they all are processed uh, to create a model uh, compatible initial conditions, or we call it analysis. Analysis is kind of a representation of the truth. And using that analysis as a starting point, The software that we wrote, the Global Forecast System software, forwards these data sets into time, and that is resulted in a forecast. And we call it loosely a forecast, but it is a guidance. The model provides guidance. It doesn't give you a forecast. So the model provides products that can be interpreted to make a forecast. And the model is integrated out to 16 days, uh, four times a day. So the model is updated every six hours, predicting the weather across the globe 16 days out every time. Now, of course, the weather is going to be different and the data is going to be different for Anchorage, Alaska versus New Delhi, India. So is the model deployed throughout the world? How does it how does That's it correct. divide the world into segments so that you get a local idea? Now, this is a global model. What that means is the whole globe, the Earth, uh, as we see in the atmosphere, they are discretized into cubes or grid points. They are like pixels uh, in, a, in a camera picture. So each pixel represents a certain area, and data collected over that pixel is used uh, for that pixel to predict in the future. But the data in the surrounding regions and far apart also influences what happens locally. So you need to uh, comprehensively understand the atmospheric flow across the globe that can influence uh, not only the local conditions, but far far away from where you live 
or where you want to predict. And it's not just the surface, it's in the atmospheric depth. So we collect the data all the way to up to 80 kilometers now with this upgrade. And that's the major upgrade that we can talk about. So we collect not only the surface data, but all the upper air data that is contained in each pixel and processed and and uh, used for our prediction. We are speaking with Dr. Vijay Talabragada, Chief of the Modeling and Data Simulation Branch at the Environmental Modeling Center of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And before we get into the details of the upgrade, it's fair to say that the more data, the better in a given cube or pixel. But on the other hand, you've got to be able to run the model in time to have the forecast come out before the weather occurs. That's true. We have to have all the data in place uh, to predict all the significant weather events in time for our forecasters to take advantage of and then issue actual forecasts using not only the GFS, but several other sources that Weather Service provides. Now you have added global wave model data called Wave Watchill to this, if I'm reading this correctly. So that brings in ocean surface information into the model. Tell us Tell us how it works. That's correct. Uh, so this is the uh, first time we uh, we made a significant effort uh, to combine the atmospheric forecast with the wave forecast. The way it operates is the waves, the ocean surface waves are driven by atmospheric forcing, like the winds and temperature and radiation. In the past, the wave model takes that information offline after the GFS provides the data. Now with this upgrade, the waves are now constantly talking to the atmosphere, taking the more frequent information, more accurate information, and use that to predict the ocean forecasts of the surface waves out to 16 days. In the past, we were only doing it for 10 days. Now that we have combined both the atmosphere and wave models, it gives us an opportunity to extend the wave forecast also to 16 days, giving our uh, marine forecasters uh, an opportunity to look at two weeks out every single cycle. And hasn't this been something that weather people and NOAA have been pursuing for quite a number of years, the idea of combining the ocean data and the atmosphere data, which seems like a logical thing to do, but it's been a technically difficult thing to do. Right. And it's not just the technical difficulty. It is the maturity of science. You know, oceans are not as observed as the atmosphere. That provides uh, you know, a challenge to combine the ocean waves, ice, land, aerosols into an atmospheric modeling system. We are moving towards the comprehensive earth system modeling approach to uh, comprehensively evaluate and uh, analyze the ecosystem in such a way that we can capture the influence of one on the other, like oceans influence the weather, weather influences the waves, waves influence the sea ice forecast. You know, all, the, all those are connected in the mother nature you know, for convenience, we tried to separate them, but now we have uh, more advanced knowledge. All our partners are working towards comprehensive earth system modeling approach, and we started working on a unified forecast system. So this is a, a next generation modeling system that NOAA is uh, pursuing. And this allows us to conveniently put all these component models in the same framework and uh, utilize all the information together to provide a coupled model forecast and we are making steps towards that direction. And one step is initially coupling to the ocean waves. And as we move into the future, we will also combine the uh, the actual ocean, deep ocean, as well as the surface ocean, along with the uh, aerosols and land surface and chemistry and you know all other earth system components. Sounds like you need a million more buoys here before this is all over. Is it fair to say that the wave data, as well as all of the other data sources, are collected as an international effort? It's not just NOAA that right. measures the waves. That's correct. 
So NOAA has a major share because we, we have multiple satellites operating across the globe, both the polar orbiting and geostationary. And Europeans are the other major uh, providers, along with uh, Japan, some Asian countries. You know, everybody who has uh, a, a, an observing capability, they provide the data through the global telecommunication systems that we receive. We share our data and uh, other centers share their data to us. So it is a collective global effort towards understanding and analyzing Earth atmospheric system. What is the status of this combination of the wave data now? Is it done and you're testing it or are you putting out the forecasts with it or what's going on? We still are not utilizing the wave data per se. We are still using the atmospheric forcing and spin up the waves. So it is uh, it's kind of a halfway through. We are using data and an atmospheric model that drives the wave model. In the future, we will combine the wave data assimilation directly into our system. But for now, the atmospheric model still provides the forcing for the wave model. So a little bit more Fortran yet to go here. Yep, more Fortran and more data. And can you still get the punch cards or those you don't need anymore? Oh, glad you remembered that. You know, I was probably the last person to see the punch cards in action back in 1995, but we are now into cloud and we don't even need to see any media like the floppies or tapes. Everything is in ether. We, we don't know where it is, and but still <laughs> we can get access to it and use them. All right. Dr. Vijay Talabergata is chief of the modeling and data simulation branch of the Environmental Modeling Center at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure talking to you. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space the federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is 
tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors and it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all, but is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've uh, led, this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.